And I think that our stories from the past, our true stories, if we hear them, if we know them, we can begin to realize and remember, because our ancestors, this was their heritage to us. This was the pure clay, the, the real sacred text, that we are immortal, divine, and creative. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Welcome, beautiful family, to the Time of the Feminine podcast. This is Lauren here, and today I had the great privilege of interviewing Betty J. Kovacs, who earned her doctorate from the University of California in comparative literature and theory of symbolic mythic language, and then taught literature writing symbolic mythic language for 25 years. This woman is not only an academic, a teacher, a professor, a wise woman, she's, she's a woman of soul and vision and someone who has merged the head and the heart so beautifully. Speaking with her, I felt so privileged. It is a highlight of my career to be able to speak to women like her and to learn so much from these women who pioneered so much for us to even have these conversations without mockery or being laughed at. These women grew up in a time when even feminine scholars were were mocked and made fun of, and yet they pioneered. And Betty is one of these women who pioneered and has excavated so much knowledge about ancient culture and what happened to the feminine and where we are now. And not only has she found this research and understood this mythic language that's in the subconscious, but also has created the paradigm and framework for which we see reality she is also a visionary herself, as I know we are all capable of being. Dr. Kovacs is the author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World, winner of the Nautilus Silver Book Award and the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize. And she's also written The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life, which we go into a little bit about her story of dealing with death, dealing with incredible loss, and having visitations from the other side. This woman is incredible, and I hope you enjoy what she has to share. Welcome, Betty. It's such an honor to have you on the Time of the Feminine podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I'm very honored to be here. The honor is ours. So the seeker in me recognizes the seeker in you, and I'm curious about what began the seeking 
what were you hoping to understand or discover when you started your research and you started your path? You know, I think that all my life, from the time I remember being conscious, I was always wondering, what's the meaning of it all? You know, what, what's it all about? My brother and I lived in the country and we played and played, and we would even play games of, what if there wasn't a world? You know, we'd squint our eyes and say it over and over again until we'd almost get to a place where there was nothing, and then the whole world would come back in on us. But we were always thinking about that, and went up to my mother one day, and he said, you know, when I die, I'm going to walk right up to God, and I'm just going to ask him, how come all this anyhow? <laughs> so these were questions we grew up with. I continued the search, and my brother didn't, and I think he suffered tremendously from that. He had the idea that there's a time when you can't do it anymore, you just have to make a living and, and live life without that search, but I think he suffered from that. But I uh, went to college, that was my only path that I had at that time to try to figure it all out. And I went to a Christian college, and it, they were very scholarly and very much in the Christian tradition, but I, I knew that I couldn't believe. And I went back, though, because I got a scholarship to go back for my master's in American studies. I went back, and I, I knew that I couldn't believe. I, I let that go. And that must have left a space, because I would say the initiatory dream was that I was in the forest, and it was like a beautiful, sacred darkness, but it was almost blue as well. And I saw a light up ahead, and I walked to that, and I saw like an arching bridge over a river that divided matter from spirit. And I saw standing at the arch of that bridge a woman in blue. And I knew she was waiting for me. And I walked up to her, and I lay down on my, with my face down. I was so in awe of, of the essence of who she was. I felt that feminine divinity for the first time, <laughs> because I had always known only a masculine God. I looked to my right, and there was in, in the water, there was a large white spiral that spiraled up out of the water, came over to me, and touched the very base of my spine to ignite that energy. And then there was a voice that said, and now do you believe in God? Well, it was a rather strange thing, because I felt these two were working together, that there was the masculine and the feminine, and that they were a divine couple. I never had that in my experience before, and I didn't quite know, I didn't know anything about spirals, how they existed so plentifully in the, in the ancient world. I didn't know that, so, and I never thought of the feminine as divine, I mean, the divine as feminine. So here they both were working with me, but I knew it was to her that I owed my homage. And so I, that was the beginning of a journey, but it was a long journey, but I had many, many dreams along the way of, with her, guiding me almost every step of the way. Oh, I love that story. That story just warms me. I have a personal connection to that story, too. I feel like the, the seeking that I did, trying to understand and see myself in the reflection of God, it was really the great mother, the feminine essence of God that showed me the way so that I could encounter 
what I now know as a masculine God and not in just belief, but embodiment. Do you have that same kind of experience in your, in your own awareness? I think, yes, that there's the divine is all forms. <laughs> and certainly there is the feminine that is the source. She gives birth to the opposites, which would be the masculine and the feminine. And she lives in all forms. I love an ancient depiction of her that she is lying on the birth in the birth pose and out of her are coming streams of life. They're the trees, the animals, all of the vegetation and people. She gives birth to every form. But of co- so, of course, out of her comes the pairs of opposites. And yes, they're very real. I love in the museum in Athens, there is a Zeus, a, a statue of Zeus in which He's just beautiful with his hand forward, one back is always ready to throw something. Uh, he could be Neptune, <laughs> but I think probably the thunderbolt from Zeus. And he's light on his feet as though he's ready to step out into the world and create. And it's this beautiful masculine image. And throughout mythology, we see that the masculine is very often the individual in time and space, seeking that source of his being in the feminine. So I see them both playing many, many roles, but working together in a loving, creative way. So the seeking of himself in the feminine, can you elaborate on that? Yes, I think, you know, in the ancient world, we can look at these symbols and know how they were thinking. And it's kind of interesting because even the mushroom was often the human being or it was the masculine, you know, that sexual energy that comes and so quickly goes, or our lives in which we are born into time and space, but really it's a very short time and then we're gone. We return to the subtle world. But it's that desire of us in time and space to make the connection with the source and know that we are that source. We are that heart consciousness and to awaken that in us. So the feminine is in every one of us. We are all the feminine and the masculine in time and space. Mm. And is this something that the mythic and shamanic cultures of the past understood? And if so, how can we see that understanding in their symbols, in their rituals, in our past history? Yes, I think that... uh, The shamanic world, of course, it depended upon the shaman, how much they knew. But I would say that the most conscious and knowledgeable of the shamanic world knew that very well. And the rituals differ. Um, And so many of the rituals were probably lost by 4000 BCE when there were tribes from the east that came into Europe and destroyed in, in very much the rituals and the symbols. And it was Maria Gambutas, the archeologist, who discovered old Europe and discovered that here was a world in which the feminine had been honored. So we know from her work and from the artifacts and then the myths that followed, once we know about that prehistoric, we call it world, we can understand in the myths a little bit better. But we certainly see that she was honored and that homage was paid to her as the source of all life and as the joy of life. And she was seen at the center of the labyrinth 
as the life-giving person. And also, she was death-wielding, and she took back, as the earth, she took back into her body all of us. We are born out of her, and she receives us back, which is a symbolic way of saying we are born out of the subtle world into matter, and when we leave matter, we return to her, the symbolic world, or the mundus imaginalis. There's this quote that I once read that was supposedly said by St. Mary Magdalene. I read it in a book by Tal Malachi, who is, you know, a Tao of the Gnostic tradition, which is like a bishop of the Gnostic tradition, which used to be all oral-based. All of their stories were passed down until most recently. And one of the things that has stuck with me for a really long time, several years, that you've just reminded me of is this phrase that Mary Magdalene said, that the tomb is the mother's womb. It is. Absolutely. She was known as the womb and the tomb. And we see many uh, uh, archaeological artifacts that really reveal that. Uh, it's just, it's, yes, she, is, she gives life and she takes it back in. I feel like that's something that's so hard for our modern minds that have been so conditioned through the patriarchal religions of our time and the doctrines of our time to quite grasp. Can you explain to me the, the difference between living, feeling like we have this finite amount of time and then having a sense of we will return to a living, breathing entity and be reborn? Well, since I was born in the patriarchal world, <laughs> as we all are, and was in a patriarchal religion, uh, I, I feared death. I feared that we have such a short time, not so much for myself, but I feared it from the people I loved. Uh, my mother's mother had died when she was young. Her mother had died when she was young. And I was so afraid that that pattern would be repeated. So I really feared this short period of time and I couldn't accept the Christian belief. I hoped that it was true, but I also had been bombarded by the scientific belief of the limited science. It was limited because the Roman Church had restricted scientists who were also mystics at that time, so they could only study matter. So being born in that world, I feared that that horrible limited scientific view was perhaps correct, that there's nothing but matter. We're a fluke of nature. There's no meaning and no purpose. And when you're dead, you're dead. So I lived within that and, of course, feared for everyone I loved. But it was, uh, after I finished my doctorate, I went to Peru uh, to work with shamans. And I just thought I've given it to the conceptual mind. And I, I want to know that, I want to know there is something more beyond material, the material world. Well, I did have some interesting experiences there, but uh, it's when I came back that I started having visions and dreams. And after two years, uh, my mother was killed in a car accident. I was grateful that I had had her as, as long as I did. Uh, then the next uh, year, uh, my son was killed, our only child was killed in a car accident. And then uh, two years later, my husband was killed. He went home to his country, Hungary, 
uh, to visit. He had business there too, but also to visit his family. His mother was still alive and he was killed. So within that three-year period, my family was gone. But after our son died, we experienced him. And we experienced him for in really deep and profound extended visions in which he wanted us to know he's fine. He's, yes, he's alive and well. And also that he wanted us to know what was going to be taking place on the earth in the next decades because we were in the process of going through a tremendous transformation. So what year was this? This was in 90 and 91 and then two years and four months later. And uh, so it was during those two years, though, when I look back, I, I dreamed of his death again and again and again, but I looked at them symbolically. And we never know whether it's precognitive or it's actually uh, symbolic. Uh, but when I put all the pieces together, I realized that all three of us knew that he was going to leave. And I think it wasn't until his death and our experience with him that I knew, finally, <laughs> it's really true. It's like I was prepared for it, but it's when we actually were with him after his death and he was able to relate uh, things that he, he didn't know on the earth <laughs> and things about both of us that even neither of us knew <laughs> about each other. And he then told, talked about what we're going through. And so I knew, that's when I knew. I never doubted again. But it took, it took, it took that. I mean, it took all of that experience up to actually experience. That was what I had been looking for. I was beginning to have those experiences of our, of our universal consciousness that we were born out of, but I still didn't know until I had experienced him after his death in such a loving, cognitive, creative way. Wow, Betty. That story. Oh, my goodness. First of all, what an incredible loss. And how beautiful how you have experienced it. My question now is, do you think that you would have been able to have that type of experience had you not done your own, what it sounds like, I'm inferring shamanic journeying to reconnect yourself with your own inner knowing and the cosmic awareness. Do you think you would have been able to have received those messages from him? I don't think that I would have because I had, uh, when I was in college, I met a young man who was, had just finished his work at um, Andover Newton, which is a seminary, I think is now connected to Yale, I'm not sure. But we, he just had his first parish, and so he had a party to celebrate. And that evening, there were people who had also gone to Andover Newton. I was in my last year of college. I didn't know anything they were talking about. <laughs> they were talking about Carl Jung and physics and mathematics and the human psyche. And so that then, we went into his library after they left, and I said, who is Carl Jung? So I had read a lot of Carl Jung, and I kept uh, a record of my dreams. Even before I knew about him, I had remembered profound dreams. So that was just incredibly important to me. And I think it was the dream work, and then, yes, it was the shamanic work, and I did use shamanic methods. I, we used music, meditation, 
and also sacred plants as shamans have used for tens of thousands of years. And I always like to think of that as not so much in the Western way, which has an ideas about sacred medicine without knowledge, really, is that the earth, here the earth has these entities, this life consciousness and plants, that when we relate to it, when we go together, it can open up an experience of the universe. I like to think of it always as partnerships. And it's amazing what can happen. But I had been doing that work. But I have to say, I still didn't know uh, until I actually experienced a Pishti, our son. But an interesting thing is that my husband did not do that work. And I remember when I came back from Peru and I wanted to tell him about an experience I'd had there. I don't know why I chose the time he was reading the LA Times, but I did. And I realized he wasn't paying attention to me. And so I said, Ishtvan, you're not really interested in this, are you? And since he'd been caught, he had to admit, he said, I know that for you, I know it's real, but I have never had anything like that. And I have, I don't know how to relate to it. And I thought, well, that's, that's honest, that's fine. Uh, but uh, two weeks before our son was in the accident, he was in his office and he suddenly saw Pishti's car over to the side of the freeway and he saw his body superimposed on it and he knew he was dead. And he heard himself say, oh, that's right, Pishti, it's almost time for you to do this. And that so shocked him but then Pishti said to him, that's right, Dad, I'll be out of the house for a little while. So that was Ishvan's first vision. <laughs> and he, after Pishti's uh, death, he had the first long vision. And after, I mean, he, he was in so many different realms with Pishti, and he realized that he and Pishti are of the same soul. I had had that experience before that they were I didn't quite know what to make of it. He experienced the lives they came in together as two different people, the lives they came in as one. And that journey was so profound and so enlightening. I mean, he experienced the subtle world, the spirit world, and he experienced what, what sacred really means and what respect means. He said, I had never, never experienced that word in that way that it was so intense that it eventually, I realized it was the root of love and that love is the key to everything. <laughs> he sat up on the bed later and he said, I will never look at the earth in the same way again, that I had no idea what you're talking about. So here is a person who hadn't prepared himself supposedly and he was, I actually leaned on him because I had this academic mind that in spite of the fact that I didn't believe the rational mind was superior. I realized I had been brainwashed in the university and I had unconsciously been brainwashed. So he actually was a help to me because he had no doubt about anything ever and he had very, very profound visions. But he said, I realized I had to keep myself on ice until he died because the two of us couldn't both experience it. And Pishti said to him, that's right, Dad, if you had been able to experience these things, you and Mom might not have been able to conceive me. I mean, there were wow. so, so many I'm things. I'm so enthralled. <laughs> we were too, <laughs> to discover these things. And so in dissecting what you just said, 
about the same soul being a part of the same soul and then being two separate souls and incarnating as two different beings. Can you share a little bit of your understanding of that? Well, I think it's one soul and they can come in as one or they can come in as two and maybe even more. I don't know. I think that reality is so much vaster than we've been able to conceive even or perceive. But I think that when they come in as two, uh, they have to split up a bit. Uh, my husband, his mother told me when he was a child and hungry that he was, he could, she could just read him a poem and he would have it. It just like a, a, had just that very quick memory system. But he was playing as a kid and he was up in the tree and they were playing stork <laughs> and he fell out of the tree and hit his head in, the, in a water trough. And he later realized, and Pishti said to him, yes, you slightly twisted the, on the brain stem, but Dad, he said, you had to do that, otherwise I could not have been born later. So he had to give up some of those talents, you might say. So they share, in a way, those. Now, when Pishti was alive, he was very tuned in to the subtle world, and Ishvan wasn't. But when Pishti died, then Ishvan was. So I can't say I know much about these mysteries, except that I do know that that was true of them. I had had an experience prior to that in which I saw that they were separate souls. And his name was the same as his father, because in Hungary, the firstborn was, had a particular name, and then the son, firstborn son, if they had one, was named that. And Ishwan said, you don't have to, we don't have to do this. But I said, no, I want to. And in this vision, I was told, you thought you chose <laughs> to name him, but he could have had no other name because they are of the same soul. And so I thought when I went home, I thought, I'm just going to say something to them and see what they, how they react. So I said to my son alone, I said, I had the strangest experience. I felt like you and your dad were of one soul. And he just kept right on doing, he said, well, sounds about right. <laughs> and I said the same thing to my husband. He did too. Well, it was almost like they weren't in their conscious mind that that question put them somewhere else. And the first vision that Ishvan had after Pishti died, he experienced that. And I was amazed because then I remembered I had had that experience. It's so beautiful how you've spent your whole life preparing for vision, mm -hmm. really. Studying. It's true. Studying the, the shamanic cultures of the past, mm -hmm. studying language and symbols, studying right. the unconscious with your dream work, mm -hmm. and then having this experience, but then with the exit, the portal opening and your son leaving, mm -hmm. your husband receiving vision, and then all of a sudden he's aware and he's there and he understands. It's yes. so beautiful it, the it way was. you came together and the different paths that you took to have that experience and also that embodied knowing of, oh, my son is still alive. There was no question. There was absolutely no question because he was so real. And he, when Ishtvan said when he would go to work, it was like a tape recorder reminding him of everything that he had to put on ice, you might say, while Pishti was alive. And so there were so many things that came to him, and he started reading. He, he wasn't a reader before, 
And he would come into my study and say, I haven't, I, what should I read next? I've got 50 years to make up for. So it was really kind of a funny thing. But yes, we became, I must say, we were close, but there were certain things that, like the vision, that he didn't know what to do with. And so we really did become so much closer during those years because we were just so, I would say we were in that other world. It, it was so intense that we were having visions almost every week. And I recorded everything. We knew something big was happening. And so when I wrote Miracle of Death, I used all of those. I transcribed all of them. I wanted those visions to be as accurate as I could possibly make them. Mm. Is there anything about those visions that you'd like to share here? Yes, there were several very important ones. But... Um, there was one that was similar to a vision that I had had even before they died. Uh, and that was with Anubis, the Egyptian god Anubis. And in his jackal form, he takes in decayed food. That's what he eats. And he transforms it into life for him. And so there was much experience about being born into the world now when it's going through this terrible darkness. And taking that in and transforming it within our own lives. Well, one vision that Ishvan had was about the jackal transforming this decayed, uh, this what has decayed. And then Pishti said to his dad, Dad, look up in the I Ching, the hexagram that starting from the top, that's straight, broken, broken, straight, straight, broken. And so Ishvan said, we have the I Ching, don't we? I said, yes. So I ran in here, got the I Ching, went back. I was so shocked when I read it because I looked in the back of the book at the hexagrams, and it was Ku, 18, working on what has decayed. That was the hexagram. And Pishti said, read this carefully, speaking to both of us, read this hexagram carefully because it is your work and it is the work of the earth. And my work in Merchants of Light, of course, was to go back and realize that we had our earliest uh, civilizations and cultures were shamanic, mystic, and if they lasted long enough, scientific cultures. They had been destroyed by powers, by the Deuteronomist, by the Roman Church, and the Roman Church had limited the study of science. We had inherited decayed stories, the story of the tree from the Garden of Eden is inverted and distorted by the uh, Deuteronomist. Whether we believe that story or not, the negativity that we are sinners, that we are flawed, that we are exiled is a horrible story. And it's nothing at all like the true story. All true myths, all true sacred texts come out of the psyche. They are organized by the organizing principle of the psyche or soul. And they're always for our growth and development, always for our evolution. And yet we were given this heinous story by the Deuteronomist, totally false, because we see in the beautiful seals, even of Sumer, the tree with the fruit and the goddess and the god pointing to the fruit, offering it to anyone who's ready to take it. The Roman Church continued that terrible negativity. And then they limited the scientists who were mystics, and they knew some of them were. And they knew more, but they couldn't do it. And it, it developed a science. It was, 
the most heinous, destructive worldview we could possibly imagine until quantum physics came full circle. But we inherited the terrible story of the Deuteronomist, of the Roman Church, and of the, of the limited science. And so we think we're, we're somehow flawed. And I think that the darkness that we see today is a result of those inverted false stories and the suppression of who we are. So that we have, for instance, the technocrats today who believe we're flawed. They're, they don't realize they're living out the Deuteronomy story and the false limited science, outdated science. We're flawed. They can fix us with artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and they will transhumanize us. We're in charge, they say, of the evolution in the future. We know what to do. This, these are our brothers and sisters who have received the false stories and believed them. And it has hurt them and marred them deeply, deeply wounded them. And I think it's that darkness, that decayed, that de the decay of who we are, we have to rediscover that in order to heal ourselves. Hey, hey, sisters, Shana dropping in to say hello and to let you know that our new advanced course, Sacred Facilitator, has 10 spots left. We are holding spots for 50 sacred facilitators from around the world to take place in this first of its kind, life-changing transformational program that we have put together for space holders, facilitators, transformation creators, who are looking for new ways to be of service and take their facilitation skills to the next level. So if you feel that like that is you, go ahead and join us. You will be experiencing a live training that begins on February 14th, and it will feature some of our teachers, many of whom have been on this podcast, who will come together and share their wisdom. We will go through a rites of passage, and it will be a 15-week training into your next stage and level of service. And so if this is something that you are called to, go ahead and check it out on our website, it's www.globalsisterhood.org and you will follow the links to Sacred Facilitator and classes begin February 14th. And when we distill our trauma and we get down to the core, it seems like so many of us have the core wound that I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. And that's so hard to actually transform that core belief because it's not just ours, it's the collective and it's been our ancestors for generations back because of this distortion. And so in your perspective, how do we heal that core belief on an individual level and support our brothers and sisters who are caught in the trap of believing and seeing that about themselves to really awaken and recognize that we are all connected to source, we are all worthy, we are all one. Well, I've always been a little undone by the patriarchy when it begins to get conscious, saying we've got to get rid of ego. Well, no, I think that when the ego can reflect the insight of who we are, then we see this beautiful, uh, creative, immortal being, divine being, but if we don't see that, it gets flipped wrong side out, and it reflects anything and everything it can catch hold of to make itself feel good. Because as you said, this is the core. All of this suppression and inverted negative stories about who we are 
has just wounded us so deeply that no, we don't try to just get rid of ego. We try to do everything we can to, I think, one thing, is to bring our true stories to us. What are our true stories? What was that story that uh, the Deuteronomist inverted? What was the story of Jesus? He was, he was part of the attempt to recreate the first temple shaman mystic tradition that the Deuteronomist destroyed, in which the feminine was beautiful and powerful because she was soul, nature, life. And yet he got inverted too. The shaman mystic got inverted, and the church made him a god outside ourselves that we must follow. So once again, we are nothing. We have to follow someone who has is something. And yet in the Nagamati texts that were found in 1945, texts that the church would have destroyed had they not been buried, Jesus reveals who he is. He says, you and I are one. When you drink from my mouth, we are one. I did not come to save you. I did not come to die for you. I came to remind you of who you are. And the basic story from our ancestors, from the shaman, mystic, scientist ancestors, is that we are immortal, we are divine, and we are creators. And I had an experience in some kind of the early part of my journey is that I had a, a vision in which I was, I, saw my I was up above, I saw my dead body on a gurney being carried by four spirits very quickly to Huina Pichu and Machu Picchu. Huina Picchu is a mountain of the old woman. She holds the secrets. And I thought in the vision, oh great, I'm going to be, I will enter Huina Picchu and great feminine being will, will reveal the secrets of life to me and the shamans will be there. Well, we got right up to, the spirits took me right up to the opening of the mountain and they stopped. And I thought, I'm not going to be able to enter. And then the whole thing opened. I realized I am the mountain. I am the old woman. I am the shaman. And I realized that I am divine. I, we are all divine. We are all born out of divine cosmic consciousness. Then I thought, I saw myself in the forest, and there were deer everywhere. And I was thinking there, and I thought, I said, but I can't create a world. Having just received the information that I was a creator. I, and I said, but I can't create a world. And the voice, I will never forget this as long as I live. The voice said to me, you just did create a world in which you cannot create. You just did create a world in which you cannot create. I said that, I believed it, and so I couldn't create until I could believe something different. And I think that our stories from the past are true stories if we hear them, if we know them, we can begin to realize and remember because our ancestors, this was their heritage to us. This was the pure clay, the, the real sacred text, that we are immortal, divine, and creative, and we co-create with the universe. And everything we believe in that moment is a creation. How have you unlearned the inverted and distorted programming that caused you to doubt yourself so that now you know that you are a daughter of the universe, completely whole and divine with creative power to create your own reality. 
<laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> and I think that we, all of us, are having to overcome that patriarchal wounding, wounding of men as well as women. And I certainly saw with my son growing up, they would look out the world and think, we don't want to be that. <laughs> but um, it just, it took for me many, many experiences. And I finally could really know it. Some people know in one visionary experience, I think I had to overcome the university conditioning, which I didn't know had taken place. Which is very patriarchal as well. Oh, it absolutely is. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in Peru, uh, I thought, I do not want a shaman or a shamaness or anyone outside me to lead me. I've given my life to the masculine. I've learned from the masculine, and I love the masculine, and I have learned a lot. But I didn't have the teaching from the source. From, it, it wasn't balanced. And I knew that I had to find the soul, the heart, heart consciousness. I had been taught that the conceptual mind is superior to all of the other brain components. But when I was in vision, it would be the symbolic right brain in which it originated, and then it would converse with, it gives that knowledge to the uh, left brain, or yes, the left brain, the conceptual brain. And it's Vico. I loved Giampattista Vico in the 1700s, one of the major first theorists of symbol, in which he said, and he knew at this point, imagine the 1700s, that the, the symbolic brain is primary. It develops first. And out of the symbol that goes into the conceptual mind, this conceptual mind is informed of this root aspect of being. But he said, one cannot cancel out the other. There must always be a dynamic continuum of movement between the two, always between the symbolic and the rational, the rational symbolic. We are only whole when the brain can experience its own wholeness only when there is that relationship, which is a relationship between the feminine, the source, and the masculine. This brings me to a, a question that I've been pondering a lot. And I even asked Anne Baring about this question. Um, the purpose, the evolutionary purpose of the rise of patriarchal thinking, um, was it a devolution? Or did this whole chapter in humanity, even the dark ages, when everything became so dense and energy didn't exist and everything was matter. And was this a part of our evolution so that we could come together having really exercised this logical, rational part of our brains so that we can have a more whole marriage with the mystical, the symbolic, the feminine side of our, our beings? So I'm curious about your perspective there. <laughs> well, many male scholars feel absolutely that we had to do that, that we had to truly develop the rational mind so well that then we could come back to the other. And for a long time I wondered about that, and that bothered me. I know from the fairy tales, which are definitely organized by the psyche, they're pretty pure forms of it, has some cultural elements, and some of the deep parts of myths, that the way we evolve, we would say the sacred text of the way we evolve, is that 
Of course, this is the first. We feel, as children, we feel the symbolic brain is functioning and the heart as children, that we feel things. And as we grow older, we're able to develop the rational. And so it is, I think, that movement between the two that's so important. But when in 4000 BCE, these Kurgans came into Europe, uh, they were patriarchal and warlike into a culture we now know, thanks to Gambutas' archaeological work, that um, there was basically a feminine, not matriarchy, but matrifocal. They saw her as the source, as soul, heart, life, and the, all of us seeking that. So what I discovered in teaching myth and fairy tales in other words, those sacred stories that were born out of the psyche, is that the development, let's say the young man goes out on the journey. Uh, Joseph Campbell did that so well in the hero's journey. He goes out on the journey all the way along. He's helped by nature. There are beings that appear out of nature, and the feminine is there to help him all along. And it's then he finally, when he's gone through all of these trials, that nature, which is the feminine, and even the feminine and feminine uh, human form, helps him all the way through that journey. And then there is the sacred marriage between him and the feminine. And then he's completed his journey, and he can return back to uh, time and space and to help to ignite the journey in others. So if I look at the sacred text of how we develop, we don't do it alone. We don't. It isn't the rational man out there doing everything along and learning everything. No, we do it in partnership. So I, I don't accept that. Uh, and I think that we, we couldn't learn much of anything. The feminine is always with us, the source, the intuition, the symbolic mind. It is very dangerous to cut that off, as we have in the West, because when we got rid of her as a Deuteronomist, got rid of every image of her. Her groves of trees burned and the sacred literature destroyed, although Jews, some Jews took it to Egypt. What kind of God did we have after that? Before the Deuteronomist, Yahweh was married. He had a co-creatress, and together they created the world. He was loving and kind, and she was wisdom. Beautiful partnership. When the Deuteronomist came in and destroyed her, what does Yahweh become like? He becomes jealous, angry, vengeful, violent. That's what we become without the feminine. So what kind of rational mind did we develop? The kind I studied in the university, where I couldn't possibly say anything that would reek of the feminine <laughs> or of soul. No, I think that is a, a decayed form of development. It's a distorted and inverted. I don't agree with all of the very good male scholars who, who have put forth that notion, good scholars, and truly believed it. But I don't see anything in our sacred texts that show a one-sided development of the masculine mind. Mm -hmm. So you're more in line with the Vedic yuga's theory of the devolution in that period? I think we, we cause great harm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yes. And took the joy, the joy yeah. out of life. And 
the life out of life. I mean, look what we've had from 2,621 years, beginning with the mm-hmm. Deuteronomy. And there have been so many other forms of that uh, right. that we, we, we destroyed soul. We can't evolve without soul. I, can't, I don't care what we think. Look at the many of these people today of the technocrats are brilliant. That's a great danger. Uh, it's a great danger because the true sacred text is of the masculine and feminine of our working together, of this symbolic and rational brain constantly in relationship. Cut that off, and we can't even have certain thoughts, I think, and truly understand them. In vision, I realized that this was something I had to heal because I had been brainwashed in the university. And in the vision, I'd realize that when I had a rational thought, that it wasn't, well, this is a hypothesis or I could think of it this, it's suddenly I knew because of all of this symbolic uh, spirit consciousness that was allowed to be alive, is that I knew when something was, was accurate in the rational brain and not. It was just the most amazing thing. So it was constantly giving the basis and foundation for rational thought. Take that away and we have Western culture which has been so destructive to soul Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. to the mind's own wholeness. And what role do you think reclaiming ritual in our lives will support with that? I think ritual is so important because we, we teach ourselves movements and loving ways of connecting with spirit that we are consciously, physically inviting their presence and giving them honor. Or I think that there are physical movements that may also be helpful in the ritual. And I know much less about ritual than so many people. And I can remember when I came back from Peru, I was almost afraid to do it because I was afraid of the spirits that might arrive. (laughs) But I mean, I got over that, but that was a stage. (laughs) But. I know that Jesus, the mystic, uh, shamanistic Jesus, taught the round dance. And I think there is something in that, in that movement. But I so didn't want to learn from others at that point that I simply said, teach me the rituals to do. I, I want to know. I know you will teach me. You will guide me. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the mythic shamanic Jesus? Yes, I really like him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, because he's trying to awaken in us the Christ. In other words, it was, you are not to follow the Christ. You are to become the Christ. And that's why he wanted to remind us to awaken in us the beautiful being of light that we are. He said, you came from the light. You are the light. And other words, we are all born out of the cosmos. We are the stars, the planets, we're the cosmos. And so we have everything we need within us to be whatever we want to be. We have to awaken that consciousness. And like Bergson and uh, Aldous Huxley, they said that, you know, we are this vast consciousness, but we have a valve that kind of limits it to a stream for time and space and everyday Uh, activities. So the shaman was one who learned how to release that valve just 
enough that we could experience who we are, that we are this, every one of us, we are all this, and creative, immortal. And we developed the organ of soul, as Henry Corbin would call it, so that we could co-create with the universe. We are so important in the universe, as is all of its creations. So that Jesus, that Jesus knew that and wanted us to know it. And he was in a deep, intimate, physical and spiritual relationship with Mary Magdalene, whom the church, of course, had to make a whore so that they could get rid of her. This again shows what happens when you go just for the rational brain. Then you, you cut off everything symbolic, archetypal, meaningful, and degrade it so that there is this lopsided existence in which we become like Yahweh, jealous, egotistic, angry, vengeful. I always thought it was such a strange thing to say vengeance is, is the Lord's, not mine. Well, I'm surprised it's the Lord's. <laughs> Why should he be vengeful? But we had such crazy ways of thinking. When we split off the soul, because it is the symbolic mind, the soul, the heart consciousness that relates us to the subtle world, to the, to the spirit world. And Corbin reminds us from the Sufis that everything we do here, even when it's gone in history, it's in the subtle world. I want to be careful what I create here. I don't want to meet it in the subtle world too. Exactly. Yeah, I've heard that our, our dreams are just as real as being awake. And part of the spiritual evolution is to also purify who you are and what you do in your dreams as well. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So that leads me to the question of the time of the feminine, this great time of transformation that we're in, and then the reintegration of the feminine principle. And you have heard visions about this time that we're in, the crossing that we're in, the healing that we're in. I just would love your perspective on oh, the times we are living in and where you see us going. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we do have to be very conscious, aware of the darkness that has been created by this patriarchal suppression for at least two and a half thousand years, and what we have done to our children, so to speak. I had a vision that was in Death Valley, uh, working with a shaman from South America and my husband. And I went so deep, I, didn't, I couldn't get back, it seemed. And when I did start to come back, it came back with this horrible screaming of a voice that was in the desert. And I knew it was coming. I knew what she was going to say. And I didn't want her to say it. But it was a scream. It can never be healed. And I, I knew that that was that feminine part in the world that knew, that loved and cared, but had been separated from the eternal uh, spiritual side that, just as was said in the, in the text of uh, wisdom, that the, she was outside the gates of Jerusalem and no one could hear her voice, that we have not had that knowledge of the eternal love 
the eternal aspect of the feminine, we've all been able to feel from the heart, well, most of us, as we've been hurt in some way, that we love and we lose these people we love. We have that part of the feminine, but it's been separated from the spiritual, eternal nature of her. And when that voice came screaming through me, it was just the most horrendous, suffering voice. It wasn't until years later that, uh, years later, I had, after Pishti had died, but Ishvan was still alive, I had a vision in which I knew I had internalized this, this suffering feminine. And out from the, from the east, I saw this beautiful woman, beautiful, dressed as a, a native indigenous person in white skin, uh, skin and beautiful. And she was on the other side, once again, the water going through, as I'd had in my first dream of the ma- feminine and masculine. She came to the edge, and the canoe just went to her very silently. She stepped in and just stood until it came to my side. She stepped out, and I knew she was the eternal, spiritual, beautiful feminine. And she stepped in my heart and embraced that voice of the desert. And that was, I, I realized this is an archetypal merging of the split off feminine from the eternal feminine. And if it's taking place in my heart, it's in the archetypal world, it's alive, and it's coming into people all over the planet. And so I think this is a major step in our evolution, that this is happening all over the world. Uh, I was working, teaching in college in the 70s during the feminist movement, also during the time when Maria Gambutas was very well known for her discovery of uh, old Europe, which was very, very feminine and matrifocal for thousands of years. No weapons. Now they've done everything to try to say that she was wrong, but they haven't really. In fact, she's been proven more and more true, but they're writing her out of history. Uh, Charlene Spretnak has written a very interesting article of how this is happening. She's not taught anymore, and uh, they're ignoring her. Uh, They tried to while she was alive, but she was very well known. But now the patriarchy is writing her out of history, but she's there. And she has tremendous amount of work and printed artifacts. And uh, so I'm hoping that those of us who do know her work uh, can keep her alive. Because they had the beautiful central symbol of the labyrinth, which is that, as I think Carl Cadenier says so well, he was a classical scholar, that this labyrinth is a symbol of us in our journey for soul. We go around and down and down into the depths of who we are. And there we meet the cosmic mind, not as other, but as self. And it is so beautiful. We need to remember the work that she has done. And, uh, And so I think that, I think the more that we can look at our true stories, if we can make that known, no, we were not what we were told in ancient times. Let's look at our true stories. Let's look at how they were inverted, distorted, and how they destroyed us and damaged us. 
Let's remember who we are. I think two things. We must know the darkness. We must know what caused it. And we must see how dangerous it is now for the whole globe. And at the same time, we have to nurture in ourselves and remember to remember who we are so that we can do that work. And one of the most powerful visions I had with the feminine was probably the most magnificent experience I've ever had was that I and two other friends were doing a ritual for children, our children and the world's children. And while we were meditating and I had my eyes closed, I saw a large, beautiful disc come out and come through the glass doors. It came out of nature, came through the glass doors, hovered over me, and out of the very center of it, there was a spiraling of the feminine. And she had on a, a white four-cornered, white satin four-cornered hat and was dressed in satin to her waist, and she came into my heart. So I knew that the mandala, the circle and the square was very symbolic. But when she came into me, it was just, it was the incredible awareness of her. And she sang. <laughs> and I, I thought she did quite well. I don't sing, but it was this beautiful voice that came through me of, we are the light. We are the light circling round your planet. Can you feel us? Can you feel us? We are here to be with you all three. And I, I knew so many things while she was there, is that I knew that light had been gathering for centuries around our planet, and that everyone on the earth who loved and longed for love and a peaceful, loving world had brought that light around the planet. And now she was saying, now there are so many people on the earth who love, and with that loving, they connect that love, that light to the earth, and root it in the earth. And it was the strangest thing, because it was almost like a mechanical thing. Then I heard this voice say, we are ready to connect to your planet. I go, what is that? I mean, I don't listen to science fiction. And that, <laughs> and that moment, though, the other two who didn't know what was happening, except they heard her sing, is that we all three just were embraced, and we felt that energy just come flowing through us into the earth. And, and it's, then it said, you have connected to yourselves this day all those on your planet who are creating worlds of love and peace. What was so important about that, that this was some, such a powerful, I knew that everyone in that disk had cosmic consciousness. It could, they could be one, they could be many. And I knew that she had circled out to be in my heart and could carry a current that I could carry, you know. And, but I was so energized that I, I could, there was a, one of the women there was kind of a large woman. I lay on the floor and she had to hold me. Just the energy was so great from that. And, but I knew that every one of us is creating the world of light and love that we want. Everyone who loves. And so it is, it is that energy that can bring this light that's been there. We've called it long ago. And root it in the earth to enlighten the entire planet, that it is through love. It is love is the most creative act that we can participate in. And I think that was the greatest vision I ever had of her. And it said something about the future, for sure. That's so beautiful. 
everything you just shared from the coming out of your shamanic experience in a really deep place and encountering the voice of the desert, the disconnected, wounded feminine to the completion of the story. And when you were telling me about the voice in the desert, the screams, I have heard that myself. For years and years, I, in my meditations, would go into my body and I would hear the screams. It's been something that was really at first jarring and scary, and I, I didn't fully understand what it meant. And now as I continue to do my work and teaching about the feminine, I hear less. And learning about the feminine, I hear less. And part of what I understand, and I want to share this and also have your voice and opinion on this, you know, part of the early screams that I heard were so angry and so lost and so almost to the point of insanity for being so bypassed and so misunderstood and shamed. It's like literally it was like insanity that I would hear. And in that there was this rat, like this rage and towards everything, everything in the world and particularly men too. And I realized that this voice, this feminine is also in men it's not just women that have this voice inside of them this feminine part of ourselves our souls that have been shamed both men and women and so i i wanted to talk about that because as we're listening to this especially for women who are you know in this process of healing this deep wound inside themselves it just makes me also think of how to move forward in such a way that we're not just raging at men you know, we're talking about the patriarchy, we're understanding the patriarchy, and we're also learning how to feel compassion for the part of them that has been victimized too. And yes, now they've had power and they've done all these things like the priests of the Deuteronomist, they, they, they actually with intention did these things. And so yes, there has been men to blame. Yes. And I think now in modern times, there are men who are lost, as we were saying, who are perpetuating the sickness, but they're lost. And we recognize it now as being lost, as being deeply cut off. And so I just want to bring forth that, that piece of compassion mm. that I feel is needed in these times. Absolutely. Because if we really look at what's going on today, which is being, the truth is being censored, people are being censored, and it's hard to talk about it, uh, that one could fall into a rage, at, uh, and you think of children all over the world, people all over the world who are suffering. Yes, there has to be a rage and a sorrow so deep that no one could really carry it. And I think we do have to feel that. I think that I've been closely connected to men, to my brother, uh, to my husband, to my son. Uh, and I, I, I don't, because I had that love and that support, I, it made me compassionate uh, when I saw my son trying to grow up in a patriarchal world. Difficult, very difficult to find a place that, that he could feel comfortable in. So it's all there. Uh, what I think is so important is that we ourselves can be healed through, through this loving other aspect of the feminine who can embrace her and give us balance and, uh, and direction from the other side. 
but can give us balance through love and intellectual understanding, compassionate intellect, and, and to help us deal with it. But when we see what is going on now and what has gone on, that if we even talk about it, we're in trouble. Yeah. And s- it's enraging. It's, it's yeah. It's what else can you say? Yeah. I mean, if it's not rage, yeah. what is it? <laughs> and it should be. Right. And yeah. And there's a there's a sacred part of that. It's it's the the voice of the desert, the woman in the desert screaming to be heard, and that's important. And to know and and just finally saying it can never be healed. And I felt that every people every person who suffered how could that be healed but it wasn't <laughs> that was after she said it but i didn't want her to say it i can remember thinking oh no no don't say it i knew what was coming and then that script but i know that it's true it has to be true the rage has to be true the the suffering i mean if we love how can we possibly not be enraged and and sick at heart at what's going on all over the world. How many people are suffering unnecessarily? So I'm so glad, though, that 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 other aspect of the divine stepped into my heart and embraced her so that hopefully what I do in the world will be through, through the knowledge of both of them. Yes, that's beautiful. So beautiful. I like to think about um, this awakening that's taking place in the hearts of women all over the world, that it's the great mother speaking to us, and it's exactly what you've just shared. So that's so beautiful, which leads me to my last question. If this, in this moment, we ask all our guests this, in this moment, if you could connect in with the divine feminine and the great mother, through your channel, through your heart, what would she want to say to everyone listening? I think what she's been saying to me for decades is, again, to remember that we are her. We are soul, spirit, life givers, and life takers. But we embrace life. As my son said, there is nothing but life, whether we're in physical form or in spirit form. The image, this voice that keeps coming through always is know who we are, remember. And they've had to tell me many times because I can easily fall into a, a demented state of not knowing, you know, not remembering um, that, that our work is valuable. We can easily think, oh, I wish I could do more. I wish this. No, it's whatever we are doing from the heart is valuable. Honor it and know it's sacred work. But know who you are. Know who we are. Remember to remember that. And we'll have a path. A path will be like Baba Yaga in the fairy tale. She throws out the ball of yarn and we follow that to the light. It's, she's there. She's in all of us. And if we can just remember who we are, the path is open to us. And may it be so. <laughs> and may it be so, yes. Thank you so much, Betty. This has been absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Betty, go to www.kamlak.com. Check out her book, Merchants of Light, and learn more about her story in The Miracle of Death. For those of you who are listening every single week, Shana and I thank you. We give you a great big virtual hug and we're so grateful for your support and we hope that you're receiving a lot out of this work we are doing. If you would like to show your support, we'd love to have you leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Every single review helps and even if you're not a review person, we would be so grateful to receive your thoughts and your opinions and your feedback and this will help us keep going bringing on more guests so thank you and for those of you who are wanting to dive deeper into global sisterhood work ready to hold more space be a sacred facilitator for the year 2022 check out our new program sacred facilitator at globalsisterhood.org sacred facilitator talk to you next week